Has anyone heard about Airbnb? You guys ever heard about that place? So um, have you ever seen any of the commercials, the Airbnb commercials? Have you ever seen those? Oh my gosh, they're, they're, they're pretty, they're magic. Um, they're pretty, actually they're genius, and I use that word very loosely, but they're really, really good. There's the first one that they came out with a couple years ago called, the, the commercial's called Is Mankind. You get it? Is Mankind, get it? Um, so it's like this Terrence Malick sort of commercial, if you can even do that, and he did. It's like a baby walking towards this um, a glass door, and it's not, the baby's not really walking, it's like stumbling, and it's like slow, and you can see from behind, it's like just a diaper on, and it's this voiceover, and it's this baby walking towards this door, and the voiceover says, are we good? Is mankind, then it says this, I think this is so good, go see, go look through their windows so you can understand their views, sit at their tables so you can share their tastes, sleep in their beds so you can know their dreams, go see and find out just how kind the he's and she's of this mankind are. And then it ends with the baby touching the door. And you're like, oh, I want to rent a house or someone. I want to go to someone's house. And it just does that thing. Like, you're like, that is, that's it. I want to do that. And it's compelling. It's so good. Um, I want to see how mankind is. And so I want to rent an Airbnb. And then there's this other commercial called Never a Stranger. You might have seen this one. It's a gal who visits all these wonderful places all over the world and is thanking everyone in a note that she's writing somewhat. She's reading it out loud. And she says, thank you for allowing me to uh, share in your perfect homes. And it's going all throughout the world and sharing all these different homes and these experiences. And she says, when I was at your home, I felt like I was at home. And your friends became my friends. No, they became like for me, family. And then it ends with her saying, thank you for sharing your world with me. It feels like home. And you're done watching this commercial and you're like, this is, this is it. This is compelling. And it's compelling because this is the way that we want our world to be. This is how we want to travel. We want to travel in a world that's interconnected and it's full of shalom. It's full of peace, this interconnected shalom. And that's what we want. We want, we want to walk into someone's house and it's like, I want to share my, come into my shalom. It's like that. And we wish that the world was like that. But then there's this home away commercial. You guys know what HomeAway is? HomeAway is like, um, like you rent a whole house out. And they made a commercial to answer Airbnb's commercial, and it's amazing. And I'm just going to show it to you. It's, it's the voice of Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, so <laughs> it's already amazing. But just watch this. This is it. That is, that is so brilliant, um, so brilliant. It's funny, the reason why it's funny is because it's true. 
See, Airbnb is tapping into something that we all want. Like, go home, Google the Airbnb commercials. This is tapping into something we all want. We want this interconnected community of shalom and home. And there's some part deep down in us that we watch the Airbnb commercials and think, that's the way it's supposed to be. But what the HomeAway commercial does, it's tapping into reality. That is the way things are. And it freaks you out. You're like, I will never rent an Airbnb again. Like, it just freaks you out. One bad, if you've ever rented an Airbnb and had one bad experience, you know, this, sharing is not caring. Like a home, like you're, I, I say this one Airbnb, there was blood on the sheets. Not joking. That's just the grossest thing. And she said it was rust. I'm like, no. <laughs> it's not rust. It's, bl-. anyway. So, I've had some really good ones and I've had some really bad ones. We all long. All of us long, don't think about that too long, please, just just don't. (laughs) We all long for a world of Airbnb, but we know that we live in a homeway world full of like back hairs in the bar of soap and like blood in the sheet. Well, I did it again, sorry. Um, (laughs) I think these two commercials are actually what the Bible is trying to do in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Um, We're created to be in this interconnected world of shalom, where man is truly kind. Shalom is being in a community with all relationships, relationship with God and with other people, with self and with creation. And it's ordered and it's flourishing as God designed it. It's harmonious. It has this interdependent, brilliant function. And I would argue we all know this. Um, all humans are born with like a collective memory of that good shalom. We all want it. That's why we work for it. That's why we long for it. That's why we hate it when things are out of whack. We're almost haunted by the shalom of God. We all have this collective memory and we want it all back. That's why we make commercials like the Airbnb commercial because we want that shalom back. But we know that we live in a world that's broken and sin, as we learned last week from John Mark, has disintegrated everything where everything was integrated and whole and connected with God and with us and with each other, where our bodies were integrated with themselves, where our bodies didn't turn against themselves and things like cancer. And now everything is disintegrated, where we're disintegrated from our environment and with God and with ourselves and with our friends and with our family, and we're messed up. Last week, John Mark taught that, he taught about the fall and when sin entered the world through humans to betraying the trust of God, he quoted from uh, just this brilliant book by Francis Spufford called Unapologetic. You should read it. It's so good. And in Unapologetic, Francis Spufford, and John Mark quoted it first, so, I mean, to you guys first, so I can say this. He said, he defined sin as the human propensity to F things up. The human propensity to F things up. Everything. We have this thing in us that we, and it's this human propensity, and we all share in this propensity. But the question is, at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, what is God going to do about it? Because when you're reading this, it starts great. One and two of Genesis starts great. Then you get to chapter three, all the way to chapter 11, this thing comes spiraling down hard, and you're wondering, God, how are you going to redeem this thing? That we all share in the fact that this world is messed up. Kendrick Lamar has a song he won a Grammy for a couple weeks ago um, call, uh, his, off his album To Pimp a Butterfly. And the song is called All Right. And in the song, I think, he would, I think Kendrick Lamar would agree with Spufford's definition of sin. This is what Kendrick Lamar says in his song at the beginning of All Right. He says, I'm effed up, homie, you effed up. But then he says this, it's so good. But if God got us, then we are gonna be all right. And his whole... 
I believe the story of Israel is this, like this last piece that Kendrick Lamar says. If it's, it's a story of how God has us or has humanity. Like the world is messed up, as Sp- in Spufford's words. The world is effed up. I am, you are, we're all, the whole world's disintegrated, but God somehow has not given up on humanity. And the story isn't the way that we would expect it to go. The story at the end of chapter 11 and chapter 3 is how in the world is God going to get humanity out of this mess? Why is God still committed? And is God still committed to this messy world? And the answer doesn't come at the end of chapter 11. The answer doesn't come in like silver parachutes, like Hunger Games sponsor gifts or something. That would be awesome. If like, if you're reading the Bible and then after the Tower of Babel, it's like, like these little things came down. Right, that would make sense. Like God sends salvation down from above and then everyone opened up the salvation balm and rubbed it on their little hearts and everybody's like, oh, I'm healed or whatever. (laughs) Like that is what we wish would happen. If you've read Genesis 1 through 11, you're like, why God send those little parachutes down, silver parachutes, and we're all saved. But that's not how God makes the world all right. That is not how God saves and delivers the world. The answer comes from God calling a human. God calls a human. The answer comes from God choosing one family from this scattered, rebellious nation, post-Babel, Tower of Babel. Everyone's scattered, and everyone is speaking a different language, and everyone's pagan or not worshiping Yahweh. And God is looking for someone to reboot the story. He's looking for someone to save the world through. And then we, that's what we get in Genesis chapter 12, we just read. And I want to slow down here because I want to be super clear. I won't assume that you know what I'm about to say, so bear with me because if you don't get this, the whole Old Testament will confuse you um, more than necessary because it already does. It already is confusing, but it'll confuse you more than what is necessary. Listen to this. Here's the question. What is God going to do? What is God doing in the first two chapters of Genesis? What is he doing? And the answer is this. The answer is God is creating a good world full of harmony and beauty and potential where humanity, the image bearers of God, are to take up their vocation and co-rule and create with God. That is what God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's the second question. What is God going to do from Genesis 3 on after the fall? After we've broken trust with God, after we've trusted the serpent's word and and, and questioned God's word, after that, what is God going to do? Here's the answer. God is trying to redeem the world back to shalom. And in order to do that, he will use humanity. God is trying to redeem the world back to shalom, and to do that, he will use humanity. This This point is pretty, actually, is really explicit in the Bible if you read it. However God is going to save the world, It will be through humans. God is going to save the world. God wants to save the world, desires to save the world, but he will use humans. It will not be by bypassing humans being responsible. It will not bypass our choice. It will not bypass our freedom. God desires to collaborate with humanity. It's always been like that from Genesis chapter 2. So here's the question again. What is God trying to do from Genesis 3 on? The answer is this. God is trying to redeem the world. What is God trying to do in the Old Testament? What is God after to do in the Old Testament? God is after redeeming the world. How is God going to do that? And the answer is through humanity, specifically through the family of Abraham. So if you get lost in the Old Testament somewhere, remember this. Here's your guiding light back home. What is God trying to do? And the answer is God is trying to redeem the world. How? Through humanity, specifically through the family of Abraham. 
So when God commits himself to Abraham in chapter 12, God, excuse me, God is committed to Abraham so that God can save the world. This is huge. God is committing himself to Abraham so that through Abraham he can save the world. It is not that God is not committed to the rest of the world, but now God is committed to the rest of the world through Abraham and his family. God still loves the world, and he's going to love the world through a family. And this is why it's so important that Abraham believes God and obeys God, and Abraham's family believes God and obeys God. God will use Abraham and his family's involvement in the process of redemption. So let me drill down on this really quick. Let's drill drill down into Abraham's story real quick um, to see how God is trying to save the world through this family. Uh, Look at Genesis 12 again. It's on the screen. Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3. Now, it's impossible to exaggerate the significance of the promises made to Abraham. It's impossible. This is, if we miss what's going on in Genesis 12 right here, we miss the key that that unlocks, I think, the, the entire rest of the Old Testament, maybe even the Bible. This is so huge. First of all, notice that there's, there's a lot going on here, but notice that what God said he would give Abraham and why. He said, I'm gonna give you a land. Go to the land that I will show you because God wants to give Abraham a land, okay? He also wants to give Abraham a nation. He wants to make him and his offspring become a nation or he wants to multiply his descendants. He wants to give Abraham his presence. This is why God keeps saying, I will, I will, I will, I will bless you. I will do this. I will do this. God also wants to bless the world through him. So listen, God wants to give Abraham into a land. He wants to make him a nation. He wants to be with him. And through these things, God is going to bless the world or save the world through Abraham and Abraham being a light or a blessing to the world. God wants to save the world and he will save the world through Abraham. God gets committed to Abraham. He ties himself to Abraham. He's like, I'm going to save the world, and I'm going to bless the whole world, and and I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a nation, I'm going to give you my presence, and I'm going to bless all the nations through you. That's huge. But notice this word word blessing keeps coming up over and over and over again. Um, There's a book called The Drama of Scripture. This is a wonderful book on the story of God from beginning to end. And in the book, the authors say this. The dynamic word bless expresses God's purpose to give his creatures all they need to fulfill their lives in his creation as he intends for them. The word curse, by contrast, expresses God's awful judgment on his creatures when they rebel against his purposes for them. Notice how blessing and cursing now of the entire world now have to do with Abraham. So God said before, even in Genesis, that he's going to bless the world and that if you don't obey, if you, if you don't do what I, what I took, if you eat from the tree, there's going to be curse upon you. Now that all of that focal point comes into Abraham, and now Abraham becomes the source of the world's blessing and the world's cursing. There's even that verse that says, the word, um, those who curse you will be cursed. It's like all of a sudden, the way that the world responds to Abraham is how God's going to respond to them. It's like the center of activity of what God wants to do in the world, both blessing and cursing or judging, is now placed on this one man. See, from Genesis 3 through 11, we see an occurrence of this word curse over and over and over again. God's curse or God's judgment on 
human, humanity's sin. And what the curse has meant from Genesis 11, 3 through 11, has meant a loss of freedom, that we've lost our freedom, that we've been alienated from the good land or the good earth, the Garden of Eden, the way that we were meant and placed at the beginning. We have hostility towards one another. Um, we have uh, moral and spiritual shame. And, and God's repetition of the word blessing over Abraham is deliberately set against the... Um, in opposition to the repetition of these curses. So what God's doing is through Abraham, he is going to undo the curse. And that's what this means. Through Abraham, God is reversing the effects of judgment on creation. I'm bringing you into a land. I'm gonna bless you and I wanna bless the world through you. And, and though sin has brought God's curse on creation, God is still at work to recover his purpose for blessing all that he's made. So, at this point, you're going, okay, no pressure, Abraham. That's, that's a lot of stuff. And Abraham's like, oh, okay. I mean, this, this, is, this is a lot for one person to bear. But this, this whole idea that God wants to do all of this stuff through Abraham is part of the problem. Abraham is just a man full of flaws himself. This is not God looking down to find the most likely to succeed candidate. He doesn't look down and go, Abraham, he's the one who's gonna succeed here. And I'm choosing him because he's the one who, who, who is the best out of everyone. That's not, that's nowhere in that text. Abraham is full of flaws and he's old. He's like really old. And he was, and I'm really old. He wasn't like young and strong and like some indie singer songwriter like King David was. Like he was, he's old. And he was old and he had no kids. God's like, I'm gonna make you a nation. He's like, but I'm, but I'm old. He's like, I know you're gonna get older before I even start doing that. And he used to be the father of a whole nation. And he was a pagan who worshiped some sort of false god. We're not sure what, but he wasn't a follower of Yahweh at this point. Like God chooses this flawed individual to save the world through what is going on here. But Abraham believes God at really crucial moments in the story. But it's filled, he's filled with doubts as well. He sells his wife twice. Twice. I don't even know how you get away with that. Like if I, if I did that to my wife, she might have a conversation that goes something like this. Next time we go into the king's palace, remember that last time you sold me? As your sister, let's not do that again. Like something like that. But he does it twice. And, and I mean, to be honest, this is, this is just the signs of things to come for Abraham's nation. When Abraham becomes a nation, all of their historical story is repeated failure after failure with a little bit of success sprinkled in. Abraham would have a son, Isaac, who, ironically, sells his wife to, to the same guy, Abimelech. Did you read that? You're like, whoa, no, no warning there. Not, mom didn't say don't do that, dad didn't, okay, this is weird. Isaac would have twins, and then one of them would be Jacob, who ends up having a lot of kids with several women, and that story is an utter train wreck. If you learn anything from reading the Bible narratively, is that idolatry and polygamy never end up well. Those two things are never good. Just read it narratively. Jacob would be renamed Israel, and he would have sons, and they would be the head of 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. So at the end of Genesis, we, have, we see God fulfilling one of his promises, at the end of Genesis, Abraham has a lot of people. 
He is given a son, and that son has a son, and that son has a lot of sons, and those sons have a lot of children, and they are numerous. Okay, God, God has fulfilled one of his promises to Abraham, but then you read in Exodus. You start with Exodus, and Israel has a lot of people, but they are not a nation. They don't have land, and it doesn't seem that God has a close relationship to them. So you open up Exodus, you're like, okay, well, one of these promises is fulfilled. God has given them a lot of people, but they're slaves, and they're not in the land, and God's not really with them, it seems like. They're slaves under Pharaoh, who does not know Yahweh, and, and, and fears that Israel's getting too big, so he oppresses them, and he enslaves them. And then God, it says, God remembers his promise to Abraham and sends a deliverer to bring Israel out of slavery so that Israel might worship God, might be in relationship with God. And God crushes Pharaoh, who is seen in the story to be the worst person in the Bible up to this point. And then Israel is in the wilderness, and God gives them plans. And here's the thing. God gives them plans so that God can live among them. God wants to tabernacle among Israel. He wants to dwell with them, live in their midst. Now, at this part of the story, you're like, oh my gosh, look, there are people, they've been delivered, and God wants to live in the middle of them. This is part of the story again. This is part of what God promised to Abraham. And this is where we have to stop and realize something here. God has made Israel a huge people, He desires to make them a nation. He desires to make them a kingdom of priests, it says in Exodus 19, and give them their own land so they become a true nation, so they can become a light to the world that all the nations on the earth might be blessed through them. This is why they were delivered from slavery. This is why Israel was given the law and the tabernacle, and this is why Israel is told to obey and get into the land. All of this was not necessarily just for Israel. It's for the world, God wants Israel to obey so he can get along with redeeming the world through them. Now remember, God is trying to save the world through this nation. If they would just believe God and trust God, they were to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests to the nations through their obedience to Yahweh. But do they do it? No. Not entirely as a people. There are some who are faithful, some who are trying to live out the righteous implications of obeying God. But on the whole, the whole nation typically rebels. Over and over again, they complain. If you're right now, we're in, we're kind of right in Deuteronomy. And over and over again, they are complaining. They break, they actually break every single Ten Commandment right after they get it in one party. Did you remember that? Like, here, don't do all these things. And they should do all of them in one party where a golden calf pops out of the fire. And they're like, the one who delivered us. And they're worshiping this thing. God's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I can't do this. Moses is like, remember your promises. He's like, all right, I'll remember my promises. Like, God wants to restart all over with, 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 Ab- with uh, Moses. He wants to start all over with Moses. And this golden calf story, this is, by the way, a true story, real story. Like, they literally worship a golden cow. And they say, like, holy cow, you've saved us, you've like delivered us and all this. Like they really did that. That's like, a th- that happened. And Mo- Moses is up on the mountain like few feet away, like getting instructions from God. They could see the fire on the mountain and they're doing this. And this, this like story here is um, you're supposed to see the entire nation of Israel can be told through this golden calf story. God is right there and they don't believe him and they worship false gods 
over and over and over again. They won't trust God and they worship false God. They disbelieve, they can't actually get into the land. God judges them and waits a whole generation before he takes them into the promised land. They finally get into the promised land through Joshua. And they're finally in the land. Like you're like, okay, good. God brought them into the land, which is depicted, if you remember, as like a second Eden. It's flowing with milk and honey with laws that govern how they are to live in that land. And now they're finally able to be a light to the nations. They have a land, they have the people, they have the presence of God in their midst, and then do they do it? No. You get the book of Judges, and we see that they actually just become like the Canaanites, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and most horribly, they worship the gods of the Canaanites. And over and over again, God holds them and gives them up to their enemies because of their disobedience. And God, and the book of Judges reads like the, the book of Genesis chapter 3 through 11. It tells the story of the spiral down into rebellion and disaster at every level in the nation of Israel. And then you get the book of 1 Samuel, which opens up with the story of a barren woman. Her name is Hannah, and a barren nation. It's called Israel with wicked priests, Eli's sons, and how Israel's enemies capture the ark of God, which is the manifest presence of God. So listen, Israel is in the land, but now God has left and God is living with the enemy. You're supposed to go, oh, are you kidding me? They finally get into the land and then the ark is captured. They're like, now God's gone. Great. They're in the land. Look, look this, is, this is amazing storytelling, by the way. It's like back and forth. Like God is trying to redeem the world through his people and they keep disobeying until finally God is literally captured by the enemy in the ark and like, oh, we got the ark. And then Israel's like, oh man, they got the ark. Where's God now? God's not with us anymore. And that's how the story's supposed to read. It got, that's how bad it is. And then Samuel is born into Israel's story. And Samuel becomes the last judge, a priest and a prophet. And Samuel will eventually anoint a very young shepherd boy as king of Israel who will establish Israel as a kingdom under God and whose son will be Solomon and who would build a temple and a palace in Jerusalem, which is also called Zion. And they would sing all these songs about Zion and how God is in the middle. And God fills the temple under Solomon. And it, it almost must seem as though Eden has been recovered because God is among his people in a, quote, permanent temple. The monarchy of Israel appears to have brought peace and prosperity more than Israel has ever seen up to this point in time. And now, finally, when you're reading at the end of Solomon's life, now perhaps Israel can draw the nations to God, right? Nope. Solomon introduces all kinds of pagan worship into Israel through wives he takes. After his death, the kingdom is torn in two. The northern part called Israel is so wicked, it's so full of unbelief and rebellion to their part of the covenant, their vocation to the life of the world, that God eventually judges them and wipes them out. The southern part called Judah, where Jerusalem is, has some good and some bad kings, but eventually is judged by God and taken into exile into Babylon. So now at the end of, of this story, the land is gone, the temple is torn down, and the people are scattered. Are you kidding me? From Abraham all the way up through Solomon, God has been trying to establish this nation to be the light of the world because he wants to save and to bless the world. And they keep worshiping false gods. They keep disobeying their vocation over and over and over again to where finally they're out of the land, the temple of God is torn down, and everyone is scattered. But through the prophets, God promises Israel 
that she will be back into the land and that there is one who comes with healing in his wings to restore the nation and bring Israel into a new covenant so they can have new hearts to truly know and serve God. So here's the question. Why doesn't God just start over with a new people group? Why doesn't God go, these people? I can't, I can't even, or something like that. That would be a great title for over, I can't even. God, just, I can't even. Or why doesn't God just drop down salvation like silver parachute sponsor gifts or something? Why does God, why is God constantly trying to redeem the world through this stubborn people? In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And then, a story that's not often recounted, in Genesis 15, God binds himself to this promise. God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your nation great, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And then in chapter 15, God does this thing, this really bloody scene in Genesis chapter 15, where God has Abraham cut all these animals in half and then lay them in half on each side of each other. So there's like this really bloody aisle with dead animals, half of dead animals, all the way across the side. And this was a, a common covenant in these days. And this is what this covenant meant. And they would, they would literally, two people, would walk shoulder to shoulder through this pathway of dead bodies, um, of dead animals. And this is, what, this is what this covenant meant. This covenant meant, may this be done to me if I break this covenant. May I be torn into two I'm vowing myself to you, and if I break the terms of this covenant, may this be me. May I be torn in two. In Genesis 15, God is binding himself to Abraham, Israel, through a covenant. And a covenant's no joke. The closest thing that we have to covenant today is marriage. And I, um, and at the church that I serve at, um, they always ask me to open the premarital class um, and I, I honestly, to be honest, I, I tell my, my churches, I hate doing it. They always, Can you do the very first teaching? Because the first teaching is on covenant. And it's always the Debbie Downer. Like everyone, the whole room is buzzed. Like we're, gonna, we're getting married. It's going to be so fun. And I walk in going, you're saying yes for the rest of your life. And you can't get, and it's serious and it's sobering. And you can't get out. You are binding yourself to this other person. And no matter what happens, you can't get out. That's what a covenant is. And I go, welcome to premarital class. <laughs> and, and no one's talking, everyone's like, and I go, my goal is, and get, my goal is by the end of this time, you're like, maybe I shouldn't be married. I'm like, then I've done my job. I talked you out of it. But if I cannot talk you out of it, no. That this moment in your life, this like small little moment at 25, eight years old, my city, 34 years old, this one really small moment in time, you're saying yes to someone, no matter what they turn into for the rest of their lives. They're like, whoa, I never, calm down. Like, that's, but that's a covenant. This is the best definition that I've ever heard of a covenant is this. I heard a, I heard a pastor say this just actually a couple months ago. I will be to you as I should be, whether or not you are as you should be to me. I will be to you as I should be, whether or not you are as you should be to me. That is a covenant. We don't have a royal couple in America. The closest that it gets for us is Jay-Z and Beyonce. And they have a, they have a song together. Um, they have a song together off of 
off of Jay-Z's album. And, um, and it's about marriage. They're going, uh, rapping, singing, back and forth, whatever. It's about marriage. And they have this line in the song alluding to, they share tattoos um, under their wedding rings of the date that they were married. And they have this line that says this. This ink don't come off even if rings come off. I love that line. This is what they're saying. They're saying that no matter, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I'm not saying that they're saying this, but this is what they're saying. <laughs> I'm not saying that it'll happen, but this is what they're saying. They, they're saying this, no matter what we're fighting about, because you know, when you, when, you, when you fist fight, you take your rings off, you don't want to break your fingers. Like, it's true, they do. So no matter what we're fighting about, if we take our rings off to box, or if we want to take our rings off and not be married anymore, we can't. Because rings come off, but this ink don't come off. That's what a covenant is. Do you understand? That's what a covenant is. Like, I want out. Like, well, you can't get out. You can't. You're bound to me. God enters into a covenant with Abraham. But in a twist of events, God puts Abraham into a dreamlike state, and he walks alone through the middle of the carcasses. God binds himself to Abraham to Israel and to it and through and the world through Israel. See, first off, what's going on here? First off, let me let me tell you that what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean Abraham doesn't have any obligations to God. Or the call to be a light to the world is lessened. That is not. I mean, basically, Israel's obligation to God is mostly what the Old Testament is about. What's going on is that God is saying to Abraham and thus to Israel. This is what God is saying to Israel and to, and, to, and to Abraham. I will be to you as I should be, even though I know you won't be to me as you should be. God is saying, I'm committed to saving the world and I'm committed to saving it through your family and I am binding myself to that promise. I will save this world and I will save this world through your family. This ink or this blood don't come off even if rings come off. That's what God is saying to Abraham. That's commitment to setting the world right. And the reason why Old Testament is so long and so storied is because God is saying, I vowed to do this and I will do it. And God will use Israel. God has not forgotten his promise. God will renew Israel and then draw all nations to himself, even if he himself has to step into Israel's vocation and take on the sin of the entire world himself. But that's next week. I'm not allowed to get in there. I want to close with a a story that a friend of mine told me um, a few weeks ago. It's a story of um, the, the, the massive earthquake that happened in Armenia in 1989. Um, 8.2 magnitude earthquake that rocked Armenia to where the, all, all of the buildings were flattened. And the, really, the, the story hinges on this um, um, dad and son relationship. The dad, his son's name was Armand, and he would, he would drop his son Armand off at school every day. And he would tell him as he was about to get out of the car to leave that he says, Armand, I will always be there for you. That's what he said every single day. Armand, I will always be there for you. So when he showed up to school after the earthquake to see the school as a pile of rubble, with nothing but his bare hands, Armand's dad started to dig and dig, and he started pulling off bricks and pieces of wall plaster, and then everyone else stood around him and 
people actually even said to him, forget it, they're all dead. What are you doing? They're all dead. And he looked up to a couple of them, flustered, and said, you can grumble or you can help me lift these bricks. And a, a couple people pitched in, but for the most part, they gave up when their muscles started to ache, but not Armand's dad. He couldn't stop thinking about his son, so he kept digging. He, he, did, he dug for hours. He dug for 12 hours, and then 18 hours, and then 24 hours, and then 36 hours straight. And finally, on the 38th hour of digging straight, he heard a muffled groan under a piece of wallboard. And he pulled back the board, and he yelled out, Armand! And from the darkness, he heard this like, trembling, shaking voice, Papa! And then all these other voices started crying out as young survivors like, started stirring beneath this rubble. And that day, they rescued 14 of the 33 students were still alive in there. And what Armand said to his classmates that were still surviving when they found him, he said, see, I told you my father wouldn't forget us. This is, this is a perfect picture of the God of the Old Testament. God does not give up on his promises. God continues to go after Israel because he continues to want to save the world through them. And this is the faith that we need. We need this kind of faith that God, this is the God we serve, that God will be there for us. This is the kind of father that we have. Let's pray.